Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 119. I want to say thanks to everybody for bearing with us as we migrated from one host to another. Uh, It turned out to be a big ordeal, and and even now, as we record, uh, I don't think we actually have any any artwork on the iTunes page. I am working on it, uh, it being... The holidays, it's kind of hard to uh, get things done in a quick manner, but uh, but I'll see what I can do. Not that anybody's clamoring for the artwork as long as you have the episodes. But but yes, thank you for bearing with us. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other announcements aside from, hey, everybody, happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you had a good time with family and or friends uh, and watching football or something, uh, you know, whatever. Or go see a movie. This is a movie show. Go see a movie. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Have I forgotten anything? I haven't forgotten anything important. Because all I forgot was Josh Long, my co-host. Josh. Hi. How you doing? Good. You were not forgotten. Oh. (laughs) I'm gone, but not forgotten. (laughs) Oh. That would be great. It'd be great if you were just gone and I forgot about you. Yeah. I, I was going to say earlier, too, the, the whole thing that everyone doesn't know about switching over the, the platforms is that now, as part of the, the, the like technicality of how it works now, this whole thing is like a there's a hamster in a wheel spinning it yeah. to make it work. So that's why everything's a little bit slower sometimes. Everything's wooden now. Yeah. It's one of those things. Like, We've kind of gone steampunk. Oh, man. Steampod. That sounds good to me. That might be a podcast already. I would venture to say it's 15 podcasts. (laughs) Steampunk fascinates me. I think it's gorgeous when it's done well. Mm. And I mean, you've been to Comic-Con a couple of times now. And so you know that there are, there are people that will make steampunk costumes and they will, uh, reimagine beloved characters as steampunk. And there's a wonderful little set of, uh, prototype action figures for steampunk star wars oh yeah i saw that are great those are fun they're really really neat uh uh representations of these things and so yeah steampunk just fascinates me i'm trying to think of like if it was a steampunk podcast would you come up with a steampunk name for yourself for it i think you probably would yeah i'm trying to think what what's an example of a steampunk i think if if i had one uh, if i was coming up with my steampunk name for my steampunk podcast it would be Dr. Grigory Crankenshaft. That's pretty good, right? That could work. I guess so. It sounds dirty. Grigory with two Gs. Oh, okay, yes. Well, three total. Now, Grigory, do you mean like Grigory? No. I guess that's... G-R-I-G-G-O-R-Y. Got it. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'll have to to get back to you (laughs) on my steampunk name. Um, For the time being, uh, so that's... 
Steampunk is an outdated technology that didn't actually exist, incidentally. <laughs> um, in this episode, we'll be talking about some really highfalutin technology. Uh, this episode, use the technical term. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you love to hear Michael Caine use the word highfalutin? <laughs> I don't know about this. It's a bit highfalutin. <laughs> that's not a good Michael Caine. That's just a general oh, British. Highfalutin. Um, but uh, so, okay. Speaking of this episode, which we just were, uh, we are going to be talking about a film by Christopher Nolan called Interstellar. We're a couple weeks late, but that's okay, uh, considering that we've talked about movies that are five and six years old. Um, So, okay. A number of people have wondered what I think of the film, and I've gone into it into it a little bit on Battleship Pretension, my other podcast. Yeah, I know you guys. You had a whole one of the movie journals where, where you talked about this a lot, right? I mean, we talked about it for probably about ten minutes, so and I, I gave a general idea. I haven't. I don't know how much you've already talked about this one, so my apologies if we go into some ground that you feel like you've already talked about a million times <laughs> and i was actually on a podcast called real world theology about this film so i <laughs> talked about it mu- uh, with three other guys much more in depth yeah. um but we didn't and it was a very good show and they were very welcoming and it's and i enjoyed it a great deal but um but yeah i i wanted to get your we're, we're to the point now and uh, i guess you can take this as a compliment if you wish we're getting to the point now where when I see a movie, especially a movie like this, that is as loaded with meaning as mm-hmm. Interstellar is, I do have the thought of, well, one of the first thoughts I have is often, this could be a more than one lesson. Mm. And then the second one is, oh, I wonder what Josh thinks of this. I wonder if he likes it or, or doesn't like it. Like, I'm, I'm pretty able to guess what you will and will not like, but it's to the point now that I'm, I'm curious to know about certain films. Uh, some movies, I just think I don't care what you think usually because I don't care what I think because <laughs> the movie is completely forgettable. But, um, but yeah, and interstellar was certainly one of those because I know you like science fiction and I know that you are a fan of what is called hard sci-fi, yeah. um, which I'd say I am as well. And the intersection of commercial blockbuster, which is what Christopher Nolan trucks in, Mm -hmm. and hard sci-fi, I was curious for myself to know what that would be. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as we always do, I'll talk about, I'll talk, I'll give a little bit of lead up as I always need to with Christopher Nolan. Um, he's a filmmaker that I think is, is tremendous as a director mm-hmm. um he's shown himself to be actually a pretty good director of actors very good with suspense mm-hmm. not bad with action and can do spectacle really well yeah i think he is maybe a bit emotionally cold sometimes mm-hmm. and by sometimes i mean every time until interstellar <laughs> um and yeah there's it's interesting people really loved Christopher Nolan for a long time. And some people still do very much Mm so to an almost off putting degree. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of like online critics really started to turn on him. And I never could because you can, you see the, you can watch the films and realize he's tremendously talented and he clearly has a point of view and he has things he wants to get across. And so, 
so he certainly, I don't think he can be dismissed. I certainly don't think he can be ignored. He is one of the major filmmakers to come about in the last 10, yeah. uh, 10 to 15 years. Yeah, definitely. And so, but what I will say is that, um, his films are not an immediate draw for me. I see them. I, I see them by default because I feel like I should, I know that they'll be talked about. And so I feel like I need to see them for the podcast. Um, interstellar. When I saw the teaser, I didn't care, um, about the film at all. When, when it said directed by Christopher Nolan, I, that actually did not make me care more. It made mm-hmm. me think like, okay, I, I have an idea of what I might be getting. Then I saw the extended trailer and I thought, okay, here we go. Christopher Nolan with a heart. That heart being in the manly chest of Matthew <laughs> McConaughey. who, uh, And probably even, uh, even uh, Anne Hathaway. Um, both yeah. of whom are very, I think, very, uh, very humanistic performers. And really yeah. bring a warmth, uh, or at least a humanity to their characters. I feel like all of them, all the parts that I can think of either of them playing are... yeah ones like that even when even when you have matthew Matthew mcconaughey playing a part like he does in wolf of wall street Mm -hmm. there's still a weird charisma to him that i don't know i think at least definitely with mcconaughey maybe not to the same definitely not to the same degree maybe not at all with anne hathaway uh but definitely with matthew mcconaughey he he has a charisma that makes him so interesting as a human you think of him there is that yes in, in those terms and he, he i feel like he could never play a part where he just has to represent something <laughs> yeah I, exactly exactly <laughs> even if they're i mean they uh jonathan nolan and his brother uh sorry christopher nolan and his brother jonathan they wrote the script and um and i think they really try, wanted to explore the character that mcconaughey plays uh, but even if they didn't, even if they wanted him to merely be a representation of something, he as an actor, I think, could actually transcend that yeah. and make the character something. I think he he defies things like that. Yeah. And so, uh, but the presence of him and Anne Hathaway, who, while not having the, the charisma that he does, I think of her and Rachel getting married, her and Les Miserables, uh, and I think of, of her as a really having a real vitality to her, uh, when she's on screen in the, in the right role. And so I was, uh, I was suddenly interested. And when I saw it, I'll, I'll I'll go right up until, uh, this point and then I'll throw it to you. When I saw it, I, it was, it had been out for, I think a week. I had read a couple of reviews or at least seen some comments. I knew that people did not consider it to be a perfect film. I know there, there are people that hated the film. Uh, and so I went in probably with my guard up a little bit. And then I remembered probably within the first five to 10 minutes, I remembered that Christopher Nolan is a remarkably good storyteller. Mm-hmm. He's a, he has a nice visual sense. He tends to get really good work out of uh, composer Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. And he is something of an actor's director. And so within 10 minutes, Everything that I had heard before went away, and I was and I was just engaged with this film, um, and that was really all that matters. Now, of course, I didn't necessarily love everything, but I was mm-hmm. still I was it was just me and the film, like no, nothing else really mattered at that moment. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so again, that's that's all that is to say. I wanted to give that lead up with my history with Nolan and all that, and my my opinion of my concerns about the film itself to let you know that those all went away because the film on its own grabbed me. Hmm. So 
you don't necessarily have to go into that much detail, but your expectations leading up to the film, what were they? Well, I, Christopher Nolan's always is a director that I've always liked. I've seen most of his movies. Um, I think there's two I haven't seen. And, uh, I've always liked what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you were saying, I think he's a great storyteller. I think, uh, he, it's almost like he's a weird kind of intersection between, uh, an artistic filmmaker and a blockbuster filmmaker. Yeah. And I think there are so many, I think a lot of times some of our young artistic filmmakers get very early, um, bought is a cynical way to say it, but that's, I'm not thinking of it cynically when I say that maybe get bought by bigger movies uh, because they have some kind of art house cred independent directors. And I think a lot of foreign directors get brought over to head a major, often a major franchise or at least try them out on a major franchise and And then kind of sand the edges off a bit. Yeah. And then I I think some of the reason they do that is because they get, if they get these young ones who don't have kind of a name for themselves already, then they, those are the type of filmmakers who are more likely to kind of give of give up some of their vision. Yeah. Um, under pressure from a studio. Um, which is a shame, but you know, and that's, that's part of what happens. Um, and I think to don't get me wrong, I'm not in the habit of defending studios, but, uh, I do think there are probably some producers um, out there who recognize when a, dir- a young director has a specific point of view and they think that is somebody that might work really well with this thing over here. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you're not the biggest fan of Guardians of the Galaxy and neither am I, but picking somebody like James Gunn, who admittedly often had like a very dark, violent quality to his films, but also could work in the realm of the quirky, mm-hmm. you know, giving guardians of the galaxy to him instead of giving him captain America, where I don't think he would have been able to flourish at all. I think you, I think every once in a while, uh, you do get, uh, a studio who recognizes that, Oh, this person can, yes, they can probably be bossed around a little bit, but they can also still bring some of that unique quality to a film. And I think Christopher Nolan, I mean, the the movie he made before Batman was Insomnia. Yeah. I mean, he made, me, 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 excuse me, he made Memento, which was a big deal. And then Insomnia, it's kind of, I think it's kind of great that, uh, that any studio executive looked at those films and said, you know who I think could be in charge of our giant Batman reboot is this guy right here. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the, the reason I even bring that, this idea up is because I feel like Christopher Nolan kind of stands apart from some of those other ones. Like he, and that's why I think people, that's why regular people know his name, you know? Um, cause I think he has made a name for himself and he has a very distinctive style and he has somehow been able to bring his, uh, his identity as an auteur filmmaker into these bigger films. Yeah. Um, which I think some of the others aren't able to do. I mean, even, even like you were mentioning James Gunn, I think he he's more suited to that particular Marvel movie than, than some of the other Marvel movies. But I think if you were to, if you were to take someone who was totally unaware of, uh, either the preexisting properties or the filmmakers themselves and you, showed them three movies by three independent filmmakers and then showed them guardians of the galaxy and said, which of these filmmakers made this movie? They'd say, I have no idea. 
Um, Aside from some casting choices, yes, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe. Possible. But uh, but I think I I think that's not the case with Christopher Nolan. I think he has enough of a distinctive style that he sticks to, and he has um, topics that he likes to get into his movies. Sometimes whether they fit or not, yeah. Um, but uh, enough so that it seems that, there, that there's a distinctive quality to them. Um, so that's interesting. I, I like. It, it, there's such a weird phenomenon with him and the, and the cultural reaction. I really like that he is is at least trying, if not always succeeding, to deal with very complex ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been such a strange reaction to that from the backlash of thing to, to things like Inception, yeah. which uh, the the backlash comes from both sides from him. There are people who say he explains way too much of this movie. And then there are people who get angry because they don't explain. If I'm not trying to do any spoilers, I'll say the very last shot of the movie. Yeah. Um, those are two totally opposing views, but reasons that people don't like (laughs) two separate reasons why people don't like that movie. Um, one being way more legitimate than the other, obviously. I, I yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm being a bit facetious in my tone though. Not in actually what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, I, I find that interesting. And I think the same is kind of the case with interstellar. This is another mm-hmm. one where he, um, I mean, he's dealing with time theories and, and yeah. a lot of very, like you said, the hard sci-fi stuff, but complex stuff. Yeah. Um, and I haven't talked with a whole lot of people about how they liked this uh, this representation of the hard sci-fi, but um, I mostly liked it. I had a few technical problems with it, which maybe we can, we'll get into later a little bit. But uh, but I like that he's tackling this. I like that he's tackling something that's weird and uh, difficult to understand. Yeah, and doing that in a blockbuster with a major. Uh, populist actor who just won best picture uh, best, best actor last year yeah um you know bringing his name as the director of the batman series to something like this uh i mean i think that's cool yeah the thing about him as a director that i really appreciate is that he he does a lot of things that he doesn't have to he does a lot of things that people are not requiring of him but he does them anyway yeah um you mentioned the time theory in interstellar that to me was one of the most invigorating aspects of it. And it was something that I don't think the film needed. I don't say that in a negative way. I mean, he could have just made a movie that was basically like gravity. Yeah. And left it at that. If, if you had, if this were a situation where studio executives were breathing down his neck and had more of a say than he did, where they'd say, take out all that stuff. It's too confusing. And the movie could still, you know, quote unquote work. Yeah. And I mean, when you think of how, you know, how he made the Batman films and just the things that he layered on and you haven't seen Dark Knight Rises, which is a a deeply flawed film, but still has a lot of really interesting developments in there, none of which were necessary for that film to be successful. And, and he, and I think he's willing to take risks and I don't think they always pay off. I mean, the ending of interstellar, for example, is a big risk, both artistically and commercially. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it completely works. Um, but I at least appreciate, I, 
I appreciate ambition, and mm-hmm. I think he's a very ambitious filmmaker. Yeah. Mo- one of my problems with Inception is I don't think it's ambitious enough. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, which is a weird thing to say about a movie that's as big <laughs> as that. I think he could have gone much bigger. I think he actually was way too restrained. Hmm. Um, and I think that comes to comes down to him as a writer. I think he is a born director. I do not think he is a born writer. Yeah. He's, he's a good story by guy. Mm-hmm. Like he should get a story by credit and then bring it. I'm sorry to put it this way, bring in a better writer to make that story work. But just yeah. some of his dialogue is really clunky. Um, and, and really on the nose. That's one of my problems with inception. And I think interstellar suffers from that as well. Uh, more than a little bit. Oh, you have oh. a lot of characters making big declarative statements. And after a while you realize like this character hasn't really said much in general about mm-hmm. them or their specific situation. They're yeah. talking about these larger things. And I feel like nobody would do this to this degree yeah. in this situation. And it's funny. You were, I think we were having a conversation the other day and I was saying, I feel like I'd like to see him direct a Charlie Kaufman movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were saying you feel like Charlie Kaufman movies have too much heart to, to be a Christopher. No, you said something to that degree. Am I misremembering? Maybe not too much heart, but I do think, I mean, Charlie Kaufman is all instinct and emotion, yeah. which I, it, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of intellectualism in there, right? but it leads with, well, hang on now. Hang on, hang on, hang on. When I think of Synecdoche, New York, he's definitely a very introspective writer. I'd he, say he is. And now, and now I think, does he have the heart or, is it somebody like a Michelle Gondry or a Spike Jones who bring their heart to his scripts? It's hard to say. It is hard to say, but I think there's, there definitely is a, a humanity to his scripts. And I think some of it, some of what you see in his scripts and from hearing him speak a little bit, I think there's a deep insecurity in him to it, to a degree. I, I'd venture to say that. Yes. Yeah. Which comes Seeing out. as how he has represented himself on screen at one point, <laughs> And that is not the most secure character that we've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he still deals with kind of intellectual and very complex ideas. Mm-hmm. So I, I could see that being a really interesting Christopher Nolan movie. If he was forced to deal with kind of, uh, if he took a movie that still had a very complex uh, set of rules or a very mm-hmm. complex plot, but had to be, um, maybe was more about human emotions or, yeah. or had to deal with that to a degree. I think that could be really good for him. That'd be interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it isn't too much worth to go into that theoretical for that long, but, um, that, you know, it's interesting. I don't, th- I'm trying to think of like what writers would go very well with, a uh, Christopher Nolan. And then I realized that a lot of the writers that I find notable are writer directors. Like they mm. tend to direct their own things. Like yeah. I like Tom McCarthy as a writer. Yeah. Um, I like Kenneth Lonergan as a writer. Yeah. Um, and I just, and I realized that, Oh, they would probably want to direct, direct it themselves. Yeah. Instead of hand it off. Yeah. I don't think he would do well with an Aaron Sorkin script. So that'd be, <laughs> it'd be interesting to see how that worked out. Yeah. That but that's the thing is that's, a lot of what people say, a lot of what people said, including me, about M. Night Shyamalan is how is where I'm getting to with Christopher Nolan. Not that he, I mean, his movies are always interesting, whereas M. Night Shyamalan movies dropped off quick and became yeah. laughably bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it would be interesting at this point to see Nolan direct something that neither he nor his brother write. Yeah, it'd be really interesting. 
but it'd be, um, it'd be funny to see him direct a movie that uh, uh, Alfonso Cuarón and his brother wrote. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. It's <laughs> it'd probably be about the they same. Should, they should just switch. It is interesting. Uh, I, I think that a. Ba- a bad script does not ruin a movie for me by any stretch or not even not a bad script. These aren't necessarily bad scripts, but Mm -hmm. just a not great script doesn't ruin a movie for me. Unless of course the film is inviting me to engage with it on that level, Mm -hmm. which we talked about with gravity and interstellar. I think with the concepts and the characters and some of the lines, I think it does invite me to really squint and look at what it is trying to say, not merely how it says it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, cause as far as how it says it, I'm completely on board, at least visually and all that kind of thing. Uh, as far as what it is saying, uh, and with the dialogue and characters, uh, that's where I think it really, where it really falls short and in some of its philosophy. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, uh, in speaking of some of the things that, that I do like about the film, uh, I specified some of it already as one would expect. It is a technical Marvel. Uh, I really, loved this image of space it reminded me a lot of uh i don't know if you've seen uh, danny boyle's sunshine have you i haven't and that's one i've wanted to see it reminds me a lot of that and that was going to be the companion film for this for this movie for a little while um but frankly they're too similar uh Hmm. in both cases it's like a handful of people going to save the world in some way going on a possible suicide mission to do so Mm um but yeah just the way it gets close to these it, it reminds me almost of tree of life when you see like oh here's a supernova here's a black hole and just thinking like you watch it and i've never seen a black hole but i watch it and i think well that must be what it looks like <laughs> i mean i don't not i i certainly don't not believe this i've never been to space yeah i'll just believe what they tell me yeah and it's and that's the thing is i think in some movies space could look too cinematic or mm-hmm. not cinematic enough. Whereas this seems like it exists. Yeah. And it reminds me of gravity in that way. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting. These movies came out so close together, gravity and interstellar. And you almost wonder, and I think I've heard other people make this comment, the ter- like gravity as a concept is talked about so much in interstellar. I find myself wondering <laughs> if they wouldn't have rather titled it that, but then they heard, Oh shoot. Well, all right. I guess that's the end of that. That's funny. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, so I thought it was visually beautiful. It is a film that I recommend seeing in the theater. If you can, I didn't see it. IMAX. I bet it's wonderful. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the 70 millimeter IMAX. I didn't see that either. Cause it was more expensive, but yeah. I guess that's the way to see it. If you've got the extra couple bucks for yeah. it, which is what I said about gravity last year, which is, mm-hmm. this is a movie that is so inherently theatrical. It doesn't make sense to me to not see it in the theater. Yeah. I, I, I don't think this has the same effect as that where no, it's a it different doesn't. experience. Um, I granted, I can't say for hundred percent sure because I didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably better to see it that way, but, uh, I don't think it's necessary to the enjoyment of the film. Whereas I feel right. like that was more the case with gravity. Um, um, but yeah, and so, uh, so I liked that. I thought the acting was pretty much top notch all around. There are, there are things that they, there are things that they put in the mouths of these, there are lines that they put in the mouths of these actors that are hard to sell and yeah. the actors sell them. Yeah. I think, I mean, they give Anne Hathaway some genuinely silly things or at least 
unlikely things, things that I don't believe that character would say. There's at least but then they yeah, at least that one monologue yeah uh, that people have had problems with. Yeah, um, but that's the thing with that monologue. The problem I have is in the writing. It is certainly not in the yeah, acting. No, she she sells it. Um, so and I, and McConaughey continues his uh, streak of dominating the world. Yeah, it was just really a uh, really great performance. You know, it's. Uh, when you think of uh, Oscars and stuff, you don't think of this type of character, this type of performance uh, being nominated. But I mean, he is the anchor of this film. And I mean, he is, he's working really hard as an actor. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's putting in, you know, he's putting in just as much emotion as any of the other possible nominees, maybe even more so. Yeah. Um, and he and he makes it. There's a certain effortlessness to it as well. Even when he's like crying really hard, it just I buy it, mm-hmm. which is very strange. And so, uh, aside from aside from those things, I mean, when I say technical, of course, that means everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the sound design. I like when they choose not to use sound. Yeah, um, yeah, which is a, an interesting choice. Um, I do think the music is beautiful. Like I said, I think Christopher Nolan brings the best out of Hans Zimmer, mm-hmm. who several years ago we kind of people who follow composers um we thought like okay we kind of know what to expect out of Hans Zimmer but then you saw what he did like this the atonal stuff that he did in the dark night mm-hmm. and then you look at the I would venture to say ethereal music that he puts out in Interstellar and I think he's doing really great work um and I will say the uh I feel almost like a kid in how I talk about this, but the time compression aspect of it, because these are characters that they're near a black hole. Mm. Um, and so time works differently for them that it, than it would on earth. Yeah. And that idea provided for me instant stakes. Yeah. Because when they go to the planet, one hour is what, like seven years, I think. Yeah. And that's such a, it's, it's really intimidating that idea. I found it almost disturbing this mm-hmm. idea that you could basically that the characters, not that they're going to do this, but you could take a nap on the planet, go back home and everyone you've ever known is dead. Yeah. It's really, I find it very, uh, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming idea and it's not one you run across very much uh in film yeah it's a fun it's a fun thing to play with in terms of stakes because that's not the sort of stakes that we usually see in a movie because how can you you can rarely create those circumstances yeah and so i think it's it's cool the way they play with that and the way that feeds into the script and that's one of those more complex things that i think makes it makes a good movie to the extent that i mean i didn't really know much about the story i tried to keep it uh tried to not engage with with that i wanted to be as spoiler free as i could um to the extent that i did not know that jessica chastain plays his daughter no i didn't either and i and when it became clear that oh i think i see where this is going i thought what a neat uh, i had what a neat idea to like play up you know in the trailers and stuff playing up her presence Mm -hmm. but also playing up him saying goodbye to his daughter without realizing they're the same person mm-hmm. um so just little moments like that and i thought she was really good as well there's a one there are moments when her character is sending messages to him and 
those moments are really infused with with emotion and and I feel like that's actually I won't I won't uh, transition into into other things just yet. So um, and you've kind of been talk been kind of interjecting where as I've been talking about the stuff I like. Is there anything that I haven't? And I, I may talk about some specific characters in a moment, but like, is there anything I haven't mentioned that you really responded to? Um, I don't know. I think we've, you've kind of talked about it, but I just, I liked most of the approach to the sci-fi a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always am interested to see how a director chooses to create completely new planets. Yeah. And I think, the new planets that we see in this movie are really interesting. And uh, I think they're both interesting in some of the scientific ideas that are applied to them. Um, and in just the kind of look and feel that's created around them. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think those are really neat. Those are two in particular are my favorite. I think my favorite scenes from the movie are moments, not moments, sequences from the movie. Such Um, as what? Uh, the one, with the ocean. Yeah. I think that's a really cool idea. It is. Um, yes. and it just, it looks cool and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, that's a, I think that's a great action sequence. Yeah. Um, yeah. And <laughs> it's funny, this is kind of a backhanded compliment, but another thing that I like is I like that he, that Christopher Nolan is a, a good enough director that, you forget about some of the kind of flaws earlier in the movie as it moves further into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there are some moments through the first, like maybe 20 minutes of it, maybe even 30 minutes, kind of maybe, maybe what you'd call the first act. Yeah. There's a lot of things that I think don't work so well or that feel like they need more. Okay. Um, but once you get into the other stuff, you kind of forget about all that. You know, that's that speaks to, I think, what I wanted to talk about or what I meant to talk about earlier. Um, when I say that Christopher Nolan is like he's a good story by guy, not a written by guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess what that means, what I mean to say is that he's a good big picture filmmaker. The details is when he gets a little bit when it gets a little bit muddy. Yeah. But what you are talking about is the big picture. Right. There are small there are things here and there that bother you. But when you look at the big picture, those things go away. Yeah. And so I feel like, uh, that speaks and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being a big picture filmmaker. I sometimes wonder when you're dealing in sci-fi, it's hard to do that because sci-fi invites you to look at the details. Yeah. And so, um, whereas when it's a superhero movie, well, those tend to be pretty broad in general. So, <laughs> yeah. it's, so then suddenly he looks like Stanley Kubrick in in his attention to detail <laughs> um, compared to uh, com- comparatively. And so, um, yeah. so yeah, so what else uh, did you respond to or have we kind of covered it? Um, I like, uh, this is not something that I could tell from the making of the movie necessarily, but I, that I knew about from reading about it is they didn't really use, uh, green screens for the spaceship stuff. At least hmm. that they, they use them very little, if if at all. They must. There yeah. are some moments when I think they had to, but uh, they use a lot more models. Yeah. Um. And and you know what's I will say with some of the moments with the models, I, I think I could tell, and I think it looks sometimes it just looks better. You know, he's always been a, a filmmaker who 
likes to do things practically if he can. Yeah. I remember I said that to somebody after I saw Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, I love that he just blows stuff up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and in Dark Knight, he flips a whole truck over. Yeah, exactly. Which is just, amazing. They just really do that, you know? Like, yeah. I love that it looks so much cooler and we all remember that shot. Like everybody mm-hmm. remembers that shot with the truck. There are comparable things that happen in other action sci-fi movies that you forget about big, yeah. big set piece, things like that. Think things falling or things blowing up. You don't even remember, but when you see these practical things, you can tell the difference and you remember. Yeah. And it, and it makes you, cause I mean, obviously you can't make interstellar without, without a great deal of CG, right? but when you have enough real things that the characters are interacting with, yeah. we actually are along for the ride and yeah. knowing that, you know, like the water planets, mm-hmm. I mean, I know those, w- those waves aren't real. I know that, but to see the actors actually splashing around in actual water next to an actual prop ship and, yeah. and wreckage and that sort of thing. That's all there. Yeah. And I'll buy it. You yeah. know, just, and th- he seems to understand what somebody like a Steven Spielberg does in something like Jurassic Park, where, yes, we're going to, we're, if for a full body shot of uh, the T Rex, we're going to need CG. But when it, when that head is right next to uh, Sam Neill, it needs to be the actual head. Yeah. That will sell, like, that will buy me the credibility with the yeah. audience that I will need to for them to suspend their disbelief uh later on yeah and that makes a huge difference and it's kind of like it's kind of exciting to see that a lot of the same techniques that george lucas was using in star wars and stanley kubrick was using in 2001 Mm -hmm. still work oh yeah i mean i've always thought when i when i watch 2001 i always think this is pretty seamless there's so much of it you look back and you're like why don't they just do this this looks yeah and then I think there's a few, it's been a while since I've seen that movie and I have the Blu-ray of it, which I haven't watched yet. And I'd yeah, like to see too. how it looks. Um, I feel like I remember there being some moments, maybe one of the shots where they find the, uh, the monolith on the moon where there's some matte painting stuff that might look a little hokey. You know, here's the thing. It looks fake, but to me it doesn't look hokey. It just looks, yeah, maybe it looks fake, but it still looks like a lot of effort was put into it. You know what I mean? <laughs> But that just that might just be my own film snobbery, just enjoying like I I like a good matte painting here. Yeah, I kind of do too. Um, um, but uh, but yeah, so that's all to say like I re- I like the practical special effects, and I think sometimes I can't tell the difference, especially with like projection versus green screen stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard to tell with a lot of that stuff, yeah. but I, I'm sure it does make a difference for the actors, and maybe there's something coming out in those performances that would that would look less authentic were they dealing with it in another content and in green screen absolutely yeah no question about it um so uh i'm trying to think uh oh just maybe i'll maybe i'll get specific um and as i get specific there will be spoilers in here we've already said a couple spoilers i feel like this is going to be a a spoilery episode so just keep that in mind there's a lot of there's a lot of changes that come to the story in the script as you're going through it and a lot of those will reveal things that you have to know in order to talk about the rest of the movie so um this is probably a better episode to listen to if you've already seen the movie absolutely um maybe most people are already doing that but uh if you're if you're wait, if you're hoping to see it i i think you might be better off seeing it first i i agree and so um what I will say is, uh, from an acting standpoint, I mentioned Matthew McConaughey. We talked about Anne Hathaway. Uh, I wanted to uh, single out a couple other people. First off, Bill Irwin, uh, who does the voice of Tars, 
which is the uh, robot for oh and another thing i love that robot like i love the conception <laughs> of it i like that it doesn't look the way anybody thinks a robot oh, would yeah. look but within that its capabilities and the more you find out about it you just think man this thing is the best i love it yeah like when you basically that moment when tars for lack of a better term runs oh yeah yeah i it's great <laughs> that was the, <laughs> yeah that, that i think that's cool sci-fi that's like well thought out and yeah. whenever whenever sci-fi can challenge our preconceptions of what a fictional thing is yeah because a robot's a fictional thing but we all have an expectation of what a robot looks like yeah we all know at this point so when there's something that goes so totally against that you find yourself almost balking at it at first like well that's not what a robot looks like yeah but then when it does everything that it needs to and it works it's it's almost as if they've re like it's almost as if they've thrown away everything that you've ever known about a robot it's almost like they've started from scratch with no prior knowledge of of what a robot is supposed to be yeah and i thought the character of tars was actually very effective i mean yeah you know that he doesn't actually and i just said he and not it but like (laughs) you know that he doesn't actually have emotions but he has emotion settings. He doesn't actually have a sense of humor. He has humor settings and discretion <laughs> and that kind of thing. All these things that you can that you can adjust and he won't object. And I think that's great because you're able to get humanity out of him while being reminded that he's most definitely not a human. And he is quick to say it himself. Yeah. And it's it's really great. And and a lot of that is due, I think, to Bill Irwin who is an actor I think that is not utilized enough. He was yeah. notably amazing in Rachel Getting Married. I forgot that he played her dad in Rachel yeah. Getting Married, so it's kind of fun, funny to have that reunion. <laughs> I want I could I could see myself I could see it being that uh, Anne Hathaway got cast and then she said, "You know who'd be good for Tars is this Bill Irwin guy." Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, I hope that's true. I love it when stuff like that happens. I ho- I hope it's true as well. Yeah. Um and what's more is he also doesn't have a voice that's immediately recognizable. Yeah. Because I, like so many other people, when I start hearing Tar's voice, um, I immediately start thinking, who is that? Yeah. And I couldn't get it immediately, so I stopped thinking about it, which yeah. was wonderful. I couldn't get it's it Wonderful to have that kind of freedom. Um, the uh, Okay, so the other thing, and this might be, this is where some spoiler comes in. Uh, there's a character named simply Dr. Man. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, it's a bit on the nose, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the fact that Anne Hathaway's first name is Amelia is also notable. Um, but anyway, uh, Dr. Mann is played by Matt Damon. Which I didn't know. I'm so glad I didn't know I that. didn't know either. <laughs> and first off, when we first see him, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the character has been basically marooned on this planet for many years. He's been completely alone. Yeah. And when he sees people for the first time and he just bursts out like no holding back bursts out crying and it's it's so amazing and it seems also very genuine it doesn't seem forced like if it were me as much as i enjoy being alone i enjoy it in the context that i could call somebody or walk into the other room and see someone yeah the idea of being genuinely alone on an entire planet Mm -hmm. and the idea that that would break you Mm mm-hmm uh, really gets hit home in that moment. Yeah. Um, and I think Matt Damon does a great job. And then the character turns out to be somewhat treacherous, but treacherous in a very specific way. Yeah. It's funny too. That he, he never, 
to me at least, I never am totally comfortable with that character. Like, there's something about him, even from the yeah. first scene where he's, like, come down from that immediate emotional reaction, yeah. there's something just not quite right about him. I so it, 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 almost, it doesn't come as a surprise when he turns out to be treacherous. Right. I will say this, that um, maybe some of that has to do with gen- just our innate familiarity with story structure and the mm-hmm. realization that, like, why would they introduce not merely a new character, but a new character played by Matt, Matt Damon? Damon? I know. <laughs> Do I really expect that he's now part of the team, that this giant movie star is now part of the team? Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's more to this. And part of me is like, well, maybe they just cast somebody that they knew would have would be able to pull off that first sequence. But you're right. Like the way in which he gives information and the way he looks at people, you can tell he's just making calculations in his head. Yeah. And, but then the way that he is revealed to be treacherous, I have so, I have such tremendous respect for Matt Damon's choices as an actor, like the parts that he takes. Yeah. From the departed, which we've talked about Mm -hmm. to like, um, uh, the informant. Mm. Sorry, there's an excla- exclamation point. <laughs> the informant <laughs> to True Grit to this. He is he's Jason Bourne. Yeah, he's Will Hunting. He's a guy, and he's like a he's a good looking movie star. Yeah. So for him to so regularly take characters that are not merely the butts of jokes or not merely villains, but often weasels and cowards Mm -hmm. that make you feel things you don't like feeling. (laughs) When we watch, as I've said before, when we watch Jack Nicholson in The Departed, he's the kind of villainous we're very comfortable with. Yeah. But there's something about the about the rat or the liar or the coward that we hate. Yeah. And we hate his character, but I still see, for, I, I, I kind of, I'll say this, I don't think the character is necessary in the grand scheme of the film, mm-hmm. um, maybe more thematically than anything else. Um, but as far as the story goes, I don't think he's that necessary, but the way he's written, the way he's played and what he represents, I totally bought and I'm completely on board with it. Like that's that scene where, um, the scene where he's basically leaving Matthew McConaughey to die and he's saying, and he, he doesn't want to do this Mm -hmm. and he's just, and he's talking about like, you know, do you see your children right now in these last moments? And then he says, I'm sorry, I can't, I thought I could look at you while this is happening. And he's saying stuff. He's like trying to comfort him. He's like, listen to my voice. You're not alone. It's, it's such a, I love the, I love the writing of that. Yeah. Which is not a thing I say about these guys very much. Yeah. And the performance is just so, it's everything about the character is so specific, mm-hmm. which means a lot when the character plays the thematic part that he does. Right. So I don't know. Am I, am I alone in this? Cause no. I know there's a lot of people that do not like that character. Really? Yeah. I, th- I, I think what I imagine some of the, the, uh, things people don't like about that character are that he, I don't know, goes into a, lot, a little bit of philosophizing when he's, when he's uh, in that last scene yeah, that I guess you could see as unnecessary or maybe too much. Um, and, and, you know, I, I might agree with unnecessary. Well, I don't know that I would agree with too much. Uh, I think they, you could maybe say they're working a little bit too hard to show, to 
explain to you what he represents. Right. Um, but I do really like his performance and I like the way he chooses to work out that final moment. And like you said, that there's, there's still an element of some kind of guilt or shame in him, I think in, yeah. in what he's doing. Um, even though and that's one thing, that's a way that I think that I guess why maybe I think it's not too much is that the stuff that he's saying to Matthew McConaughey, that's kind of explaining what he believes. I, I feel a little bit like he's explaining this to himself. He's trying to convince oh, yeah. himself. And so that's why I don't think it's too much. That's why I think it's still, uh, even though it might read certainly on the page probably reads as exposition. Um, I don't know. I think that character seems like he would need to remind himself yeah. why this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I think so. And it's, and again, when I say he's not necessary, I guess what I mean is that like a film like this doesn't actually need a villain, you no. know, and not that he's a, a, not that he's an overarching villain or anything like this. Like adversity can be the villain here. Yeah. Um, Man versus nature. Yeah. But, uh, but once I get over that again, and the writing of the character and the and the performance of the character gets me over that to yeah. the point that I actually really, I really like that part. I'm really, I will say this: he he does inject some some new life in the film at a t- at a point when it probably needs it. Yeah, I I think it it gives the film one of those changes that I think is important, and I think he serves as an important. Uh, he he serves as a delivery of information that these characters couldn't get otherwise, which is that, at least in many people's eyes, the plan never was to get people off right. of Earth. Um, and they need to get that some, somehow and getting it from him. Yeah. And from him being a person who kind of coldly and clinically goes through that without any kind of remorse for right. the human race. Or I, I, I shouldn't say the human race. Uh, I should say the existing humans on Earth. Indeed. Um, because for him there's a very real distinction yeah but uh i don't know that that kind of forces them to look in the face this uh one aspect of scientific discovery and progress Mm -hmm. which is a possible reality and is very kind of cold and un unfriendly to hear yeah um so we're starting to uh (laughs) Uh, go a little bit long and we've still got a lot of stuff to talk about. So I'll, I'll very briefly talk about, uh, some of the stuff that I don't like. Um, in fact, actually I'll throw it to you first. Uh, what is it that you, cause you say you mostly like the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is, what's some of the stuff that, uh, keeps you from, from really loving it? Um, I think first of all, I feel like it rushes through that first first act if that's what we call it. if we say everything before he leaves earth mm-hmm. all that stuff i feel like it kind of rushes through that and it seems fine once you get to the other stuff because like i said you forget about it a little right. bit but <clears throat> as big as big of a moment as him leaving his daughter ends up being in the actual film the decision for him to do that and then the aftermath of him actually doing that are almost not present in the film it's like he he talks with them a little bit, then he go he has apparently decided goes to talk to her about it, and the next thing we see him he's getting ready to go into space. Yeah, they well, actually, he's going it. Yeah, they actually take a pretty good amount of time, sort of building the world, mm-hmm. and then once it's time for the story to start, 
it's it's there. We're we're there already. We're just there. Yeah. From so, the, from the time from him deciding he wants to go to him being in space. Five minutes? Five minutes, maybe. <laughs> it's So, like, that stuff seems to go by a little bit too fast. Um, uh, yeah. I, and, and I think maybe part of what they're thinking in their heads is we have to explain everything that's happening. Right. And there's a lot to explain because there's a lot of complex sci-fi to set up. Uh, although you can maybe make the... Ex, the you can maybe make the argument that there's stuff that he feels like he needs to explain that he doesn't necessarily have to. Right. Um, and I, we don't have to go into all that, but, uh, uh, I think they may be thinking this is, it's a long movie already. We've got all this other stuff. We've got to get, got to get through. We don't have time to get into all that. Right. Um, and there, there could be a valid argument. I don't know. Uh, but I think that undercuts a little bit of the emotion to it. Um, then, uh, I don't, there's several things I don't like about the ending. Um, one is that the, uh, the conceit with which it wraps up the ending or I yeah. guess with, with which it, the conceit that's involved in the climax, I guess we probably should just be talking about it cause it's going to be sure. too hard to, to dance around it. The whole yeah. thing inside the black hole doesn't seem too well thought out, especially because everything else is uh seems to be very orchestrated and yeah. very very uh precise that that thing doesn't seem to work that well and i think emotionally doesn't land so well i think there's a lot of things again in the directing he distracts us from yeah but in the reality of thinking about it i think i said to you there's no reason that she would assume that her father is trying to communicate to her through a bookshelf. Right. Uh, the music is swelling and we can see him there and we want him to know, yeah. or we want her to understand and we want her to know. And thus she does. It's we've, we've kind of willed that into existence yeah. as an audience more than it actually happening organically. Um, so that bothered me a little bit. And then I think he wants to clean it up a little bit too bit at the end. Yeah. Um, there's something that, that I don't think is, it, it, it maybe may be too happy of an ending. Maybe, um, uh, maybe. Yeah. So, and it's not hard sci-fi if it's got a happy ending, obviously. <laughs> well, which maybe is, not. Kind, it's usually how it works. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the other thing that I have <coughs> a problem with is, I think there are time loops in the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long you want to talk about this, if at all, because I've had long conversations with people about this so far. Right. Um, I'll try and distill it. I have figured out ways that most of it can make sense. Okay. The one thing that I'm still convinced cannot make sense is that he uh, gives himself the coordinates to go to the NASA place. Okay. Because other, when other people have tried to say that, no, there's not time loops in the movie, they don't address that one. They address some of the other things. And some of the other things can make sense. But if he is the one who causes himself to find the NASA right. base that ultimately sends him into space, that's a loop. Uh, yes, I would, I would say that's true. So what you're saying is like everything after that, it's conceivable that he would tell himself to stay, that he would try to talk to, uh, that he would talk to Murph through the, the, the watch and right. stuff like that. Be- but because- the initial thing, it should be 
someone else. Yes, someone else should be sending the coordinates because yeah. then um, when when he even the stay thing that doesn't actually affect anything. And right. you could make the argument, and this is getting really deep and really uh, uh, esoteric, I guess. Yeah, you could make the argument that what we're seeing when we see the stay initially appear mm-hmm. is the retroactive reality that's created by him going into that black hole later in the movie. Mm. (laughs) But, but that argument can be made and then it can still make sense. But anything that he does there that directly affects his actions to get him there, that, that can't happen. That doesn't logically make sense. Yeah, it makes, and you still haven't seen Looper, have you? No, I haven't. I want to. From this angle, not that the film makes perfect sense. There are major, time travel issues Mm -hmm. but it at least there's a moment where it at least acknowledges that this all needs to happen one way first Mm -hmm. then once time can be manipulated then we can start making changes Mm -hmm. but for this to work it needs like okay futurama fry eventually becomes his own grandfather (laughs) all right but that's the second time the first time, his grandfather's his grandfather. Mm. But then he goes back in time, accidentally kills his grandfather, <laughs> and impregnates his grandmother not knowing that she's his grandmother, uh, thus becoming his own grandfather. Yeah. And then that, then the loop starts, but something needs to kick that off. Yeah. And, you know, and by the way, it also happens in the third Harry Potter, but Harry Potter is a world of magic. Magic. So I'm much more willing to go with it. Yeah. Um, and, and directed think, by Alfonso Cuambro. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it... I notice it more in this one and I feel like it sticks out more in this one because there's a lot of, because so much of it is thought out to avoid those things. Mm -hmm. And there's even, if you go online, there is a flow chart that someone has created. It might even be the guy there's apparently there's an executive producer on the film that worked with, uh, Nolan in making the movie. Hmm. Who's a, a like quantum physicist or something like that. Yeah. So he had an input on a lot of this complex theoretical stuff um (laughs) i read somewhere or maybe megan was telling me that she'd heard somewhere that there were times when they were working on stuff for the script and christopher nolan asked would ask this guy like can we have something where uh it turns out they can go faster than the speed of light for something the guy was like no you absolutely cannot that is impossible there is no way ever that that could ever be a scientific possibility and chris Nolan was all kind of bummed about it because he yeah. wanted that to be part of the movie but um but yeah see i guess that's what i'm talking about is when you have someone who's trying to get you to stick to a certain level of uh scientific realism which is the whole hard sci-fi thing mm-hmm. then when there are gaps in that they stand out a little bit more which okay which brings me to my big problem with the film both artistically and thematically which will actually then get us into the the theme uh, the thematic discussion of of this um this is a film okay so you say hard sci-fi it it needs a certain degree of scientific realism uh i agree but what's odd is how many really great hard sci-fi movies incorporate an element of spirituality or at the very least the supernatural or Mm -hmm. one could say the unexplainable Mm -hmm. 2001 has uh the monolith yeah you don't know where it comes from you don't know what its purpose is but you do see what the effect of it is yeah uh solaris has this planet that uh project that 
not merely projects things, uh, projects the, the, the desires of, of people that are near it, but actually creates them, mm-hmm. actually makes them a real thing, a real tangible thing. And so, uh, and no, and it's never explained why that happens. I mean, it, like this is not an unheard of thing that science fiction will introduce this, this element that is just so, that is fantastical. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why interstellar, kind of bothers me is you know you say he shouldn't have been the one to give himself the coordinates it should have been somebody else uh and then and i agree uh and then by the time we see the end when it's like he talks about oh they brought us here well who's they and then the conclusion they come to is they're us Mm -hmm. once we've evolved to a point where uh where time is like a fifth dimension or something like that. I, I, something like that. Um, once we evolve to that point where we're not limited by these things that we're limited to now, then we go back and save ourselves and that sort of thing. Uh, that's all well and good, except here's my problem with it. And it's not merely a problem because I'm a, because I'm a Christian, I believe in God and all that sort of thing. Um, it's a problem because it's a film that wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants all the benefit of spirituality. It wants all the benefit of having this entity for whom time is no issue, mm-hmm. which if you talk to any number of people, I mean, you know, they'll talk about how time is a human construct, but it's something that if we don't believe in it, will go insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so an entity for whom time is no issue, people genuinely say, oh, well, that's God or a godlike thing. Mm-hmm. That is not something that people can be. Yeah. And it, so for a lot of other sci-fi movies where they have something like that, it usually ends up being aliens. Because yeah. that's something that, again, almost works like magic. We don't have any rules to exactly. it. So we can kind of play with it as it needs to for the movie to work. Yeah, it could be that as well. But the fact that they made it us but not the us we know not the us that the film puts out there and that's the thing that bothers me is that it's a film that actually has in some ways a negative view of humanity and what humanity is capable of to the extent this brings in the matt damon character again that the character dr man has been described as the best of us And we see how treacherous he can be precisely because he's focused so much on survival versus anything else. He's Mm -hmm. always talking about the survival instinct and how that, how, and I think you can make the argument that if we're focused on mere survival, then that can be actually quite uh, merciless. Mm -hmm. And so, so the character named Dr. Man, who's v- seen as the best of us, is also treacherous. And then characters that we like and agree with uh, talk about how the dust bowl that was created on Earth seems to be a function of overconsumption uh, so that people did this. We mm. created this. Uh, we are treacherous. We're all of these things. But, but... In the future, not a tangible future, in a future that's so far in advance, uh, so far away that time doesn't mean anything anymore, um, then we become this good thing. We become this great thing. And that, to me, stretches the boundary of realism. 
Hmm. Like that's them saying like, we want to have this commentary on humanity while also having an optimism of what we can be. And that's, I'm fine with optimism, but what he's, what he's saying is like, we can be as good as what is essentially God, but he doesn't want to call it that. Hmm. In fact, they never say it. Yeah. And it just bothers me that like you, they bend over backwards to not include this thing that frankly, the story is already organically pointing at Hmm. God or aliens, something that is not us, frankly, something something that is supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that really bothers me Hmm. about the movie. That's it. And that's a big picture problem. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting too, that I, I think what we're talking about a a little bit about before the show that I think I do disagree on is I, I don't think, uh, I don't feel like it was as strong in the movie that uh, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there was an environmental issue really. I, to me, it didn't feel like the film was saying we wasted our earth and we wasted our resource sources and we destroyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could get that. And I think because that is kind of a popular cultural idea now that maybe they assume people are going to read that into it, but I don't feel like they're necessarily saying that, but I do agree that they are saying that there's a lot of bad in people um, and Dr. Mann being a perfect example. Yeah. Um, I think they're trying to show two opposing viewpoints about humanity. One being the Dr. Mann argument, which is essentially survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Um, And one, this is where I think the problem comes. And I guess where I agree with a lot of what you're saying is the other side, the other argument I feel like it's just kind of assuming that we all kind of believe it, mm-hmm. which is the argument that every everyone has value and we should try and rescue them no matter what. But no one really makes that case in the movie. Right. I don't ever feel like anyone says anything t- to give us a reason that we should be doing something to get all these people off of the earth. And we all take it for granted because we don't want to see these characters that we have come to like yeah. in the movie just die. But but there's no why to it unless you try to make the why someday we're going to be something amazing. Right. And just, and it's interesting that it's a film that the hope that these characters have, the hope of humanity is basically God, but they won't call it that. Yeah. The hope that, and that through this thing we can be, I apologize to use the, the Christianese term, we can be redeemed. And I mm-hmm. do think actually, because I, I actually looked up the script online because this this little section was not in the memorable quotes on IMDb. Mm-hmm. And it is when John Lithgow, who is a character that we like mm-hmm. and a character we agree with and seems very wise and that kind of thing. He says, when I was a kid, it felt, it felt like they made something new every day, some gadget or idea, like every day was Christmas. But we made a lot of mistakes. Six billion people. Just try to imagine that. Every last one of them trying to have it all. The truth is this world isn't that bad. In a lot of ways, it's better. That sounds like an indictment of, I won't even say consumerism or materialism, just that thing of everyone trying to have it all. That mm-hmm. is about selfish. That's about greed and selfishness and, and six billion people trying to have it all. And now we don't have anything. Hmm. That's what that, like that line stuck out to me when he said it hmm. as like, okay, so that's whatever explanation. And of course there's also this thing called the, the blight, I believe. Yeah. And just, which is something beyond people's control, but 
so it's a combination of things that something people did and something bigger than that. Yeah. And so, um, which by the way, might also suggest a certain supernatural quality as well, that the Mm -hmm. earth is, that this thing is happening that is basically saying you guys didn't do well enough. So I'm going to take away your food and you will die. Mm. Um, and perhaps we can try again after that. But, Mm. uh, but that's me reaching. Um, but yeah, so it was that line that really got me thinking about it. Okay. So that's them talking about the past, talking about the future is this hopeful, uh, amazing thing that they just assume will happen. Um, and so that's that's what I wanted to talk about uh, in this film is this idea of um, not even just the goodness of man or the redemption of man, but like where do we find our hope? Um, this is a film that it, fi- it finds our hope in us, mm-hmm. but even then it finds the hope it finds hope in love. That's the big art. That's the big you know monologue that uh, Anne Hathaway has. Yeah. Uh, Either, that, either way, it has to be something that transcends the uh, the practical or the tangible. Exactly, which is what Doctor Mann is constantly arguing in favor of. Yeah, and so we've got. A, I've got a lot of quotes here, and maybe we don't need to say them all. But before I get to them, I will say the companion film is one that is hard sci-fi that's also delightfully fun um, and indicts everything. <laughs> People, religion, science. It's got a little something for animals. Animals. <laughs> uh, and that is Franklin J. Schaffner's Planet of the Apes, 1968. Uh, written by, or based on the novel by Pierre, how would you say that last name? Uh, I think it's just Boulle. Boulle. Pierre, Pierre Boulle. And adapted by Michael Wilson and Rod Serling, I worth noting. I don't know how I didn't know that. Rod, I didn't know, I didn't Rod know Serling either until I looked it the, up. Uh, that's interesting. Um, and I don't need to tell people what the what this film is about, but I'll mention a couple of notable similarities, which mm-hmm. is these astronauts uh, go on a mission and they go into hypersleep, and when and they crash land on this planet. And, uh, spoilers, everybody. It turns out it's earth. <laughs> Do you, um, does that movie at all? I, and I don't remember cause I haven't seen it for a long time. I don't think it does, but does that at all deal with the same thing that this one does with the time thing where, where, uh, the reason time hasn't passed as much for them is because they're in a place where time affects them differently. I think so. I was looking at uh, memorable quotes and yeah, um, yeah. Okay. So I'll just quote this, uh, and this will get us well into the uh, <laughs> into the theme. Uh, Charlton Heston's character Taylor says this. This is something that I think he's saying either before or after he uh, goes into hypersleep. He says this much is probably true. The men who sent us on this journey are long since dead and gone. You who are reading me now are a di- okay. So this is after mm. you who are reading me now are a different breed. I hope a better one. I leave the 20th century with no regrets, but one more thing. If anybody's listening, that is nothing scientific. It's purely personal, but seen from out here, everything seems different. Time bends. Space is boundless. It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. That's about it. Tell me though, does man, that marvel of the universe, that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars, still make war against his brother, keep his neighbor's children starving? Uh, you know what? When you look at that, it's like, how did I not think Rod Serling wrote this thing? <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so it would appear that 
when he's talking about time bends and the effect of space uh, on time. But I think a lot mm-hmm. of it is that he's he and his uh, companions have been asleep for a long time, and he's talking yeah. about the people that sent me are dead. You mm-hmm. know, and he just knows that that's an assumption. And so, so they they crash land on a planet that they this strange planet where apes have guns and they ride horses and they talk and they rule have a society and humans are largely wordless and, and basically pretty, uh, uh, primitive. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you, ha- whereas this guy, he is, he can talk, he can think, he can talk, he can sing. <laughs> That's from the Simpsons. Um, and so, uh, throughout the film, he's constantly asserting that, no, 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 you guys don't get it. Where I'm from, we evolved from you. You guys are the lower forms of life. And then the apes are saying, yes, and yet here we are talking like you, having a society like you. So there's kind of this debate. And uh, a a character played by Morris Evans named uh, Dr. Zayas, who I think is a great character. I really like him a lot. He's written wonderfully. And there's a real there's a real cynicism to him and he does seem to know what man is. Um, and so he says, I've always known about man from the evidence. I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. His emotions must rule his brain. He must be a warlike creature who gives battle to everything around him, even himself. That's uh, fairly damning. <laughs> um, but yeah. And so, so I've got, again, I've got a lot of these, I've got a lot of quotes here, but I want to, and so we may just kind of rattle them off here. Um, but I'll, but I'll jump around. Uh, so I talked earlier about how, uh, the John Lithgow character in, uh, Interstellar was talking about how, you know, everybody wanted it all. And they, and now they live in a place that's basically a dust bowl. And it's interesting because Dr. Zayas mentions the forbidden zone was once a paradise. Your breed made a desert of it ages ago. And it turns out that we are on earth. And so a very similar circumstance to, um, to interstellar again, not everything was uh, man-made in that. And so, um, so this is a film that just real, it, it really, it's a real indictment of humans end of man it's very cynical uh the taylor character says i'm a seeker too but my dreams aren't like yours i can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man has to be and so in both um in both films you have people clinging to this idea that there's something bigger out there Mm -hmm. and that that thing is going to save us somehow or at mm-hmm. least or at least the instinct to look for that thing will save us there's a, a a monologue here by matthew mcconaughey's character that i'll let you read and do your best matthew mcconaughey <laughs> don't do that <laughs> i'm not gonna do that yeah which 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 one? Oh, I? sorry uh yeah is uh, it it's this one it's right underneath yeah that's the very the first one okay He says, we've always defined ourselves by the ability to overcome the impossible, and we count these moments, these moments when we dare to aim higher, to break barriers, to reach for the stars, to make the unknown known. Uh, We count these moments as our proudest achievements, but we lost all that. Or perhaps we've just forgotten that we're still pioneers, and we've barely begun, and that our greatest accomplishments cannot be behind us because our destiny lies above us. Above us. Above us. In the stars. In the stars. Or 
one could say, the heavens. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. We'll get you next time. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that is a much more hopeful way of saying, I can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. Mm-hmm. Now, he's talking about like how we men are capable of something. We're capable of searching for something better. Whereas Taylor says, surely there has to be something better than us. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, it's people really kind of hitching their, he calls him, uh, Taylor in Planet of the Apes calls himself a seeker. Like, whereas... Uh, Cooper says a pioneer, both people searching for something that they don't know mm-hmm. that is bigger than them that they can maybe put their hope into. Yeah. And so, and, the, and interstellar ultimately says we can put our hope in ourselves. Yeah. Planet of the apes does not say that <laughs> it says, no, we're, we're even worse than we thought we were. <laughs> we are capable of tremendously horrible things. But you look like you're about to say something. I was going to say, I think there might be, maybe it's not explicit, but I think there might be an in interstellar, the idea that, I mean, I think it still relies on us, but the idea that we can discover th- that like the thing that is out there that's better is some kind of discovery or, oh, sure. or, or, uh, just progress in general. Like yeah. there's something that we can touch into that can, that can fix all of the problems. Right. Um, that this thing will in some way elevate us. It does seem to be a, uh, about that as well. Right. That maybe we, I mean, we find a magic box that, that yeah. can fix everything. And so that's what the idea of the pioneer is, is getting that magic box that then yeah. gets us whatever it is that we want. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, like you said, planet of the apes goes the other way. And I, I mean, I think it is kind of cynical to say, but, uh, throughout history, I don't think we ever find a situation where the pioneers have found the thing that fixed everything. Right. That's not to say the pioneering is bad. I think uh, whether you're thinking out of it in terms of old timey exploring pioneers or pioneers of science and industry, yeah, um, I think a lot of those things have you know are obviously amazing and wonderful moves forward that, that have benefited everybody. Yeah, but um, it's never fixed all of our problems because uh, the nature of man, which I think is the I think we agree with the position of the planet that the planet of the apes takes about the, yeah. uh, uh, the nature of man, uh, always has to, out of necessity has to, uh, pervert those things. Yeah. And it's, you know, and so what we're talking about is not, it's not an upbeat thing. I mean, it's, and I, I personally am not a big fan of, of Christians who talk who really emphasize the fallenness of man. I agree with it, but they put it out there so much that I think they probably put it out there in a response to a certain, for lack of a better term. In fact, I will not use that term. Um, (laughs) A certain type of Christianity that emphasizes, again, grace is the thing that differentiates us from, from other faiths. It's the thing that saves us. Mm -hmm. So when I say an emphasis on grace, I'm not saying no works are important too. That's not what I'm saying, but saying that basically it's so much about grace that you are, that nothing is required of you, Mm -hmm. you know, and as you and I've talked about in the past, when Jesus, you know, he says, nobody has condemned you and neither do I, 
now go and sin no more. There is this idea, whereas I think a lot of people would end at the part they like, right. as opposed to the part yeah. of like, okay, now try and strive for holiness, knowing that you're not going to succeed, and I'm fine with that. Yeah. And as much as grace is such a such a uh, key point of Christianity, um, we need to realize that what necessitates grace is the nature of man. Right. And so I the think there's nature of man. So I think there's a lot of churches and a lot of Christians that do emphasize that. And maybe they hit it a little bit too hard because I know there are times when I listen to certain sermons by certain pastors and I think, uh, I'm, I feel terrible. I feel, <laughs> I recognize I'm saved, but it sounds like God's not on board with, it. he's just almost like, well, I said I would, I guess I will now. Um, but yeah, like he uh, lost a bet. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so that's the thing. So I don't necessarily like to talk very much about the fallenness of man, but what I do want to talk about is that when you think about it, it can be hopeless. It can seem hopeless, Mm -hmm. you know, and here's an exchange between Taylor and Dr. Zayas. Um, and I will let you, you can be Taylor. I'll be Dr. Zayas. I get that. Are you going to do your Dr. Zayas voice? I can't, I don't know if I can do, I don't know what it is. I, let me see if I can remember it. I think I, I can remember the delivery can, of this line. I can line. do a Charlton Heston probably. Okay, you go ahead. A planet where apes evolve from men, there's got to be an answer. Don't look for a Taylor. You might not like what you find. All right, now. That's pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> I'm proud of us. Good job, everybody. <laughs> uh, we used to act. And so, um, you might not like what you find. Like, as you delve into what makes people people as you search into this, you might not like what you find. And again, I, like in 2014, as I've said before, I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti-progress. I'm not anti, uh, what people can achieve. I'm sitting in my, I'll say it again. I've done this before. It's worth saying I'm in my house in the middle of a city talking into a microphone connected to a soundboard, to a computer to the, which is connected to the internet where this show will be posted, where then people can listen to it on their computers. And what are we talking about? Movies. <laughs> Everything about this is something that is not that would not have been possible. Everything about this specific setup would not have been possible 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's great. I love what is happening uh, in many ways. Yeah. But at the same time, I specifically looked for a quote by... <laughs> J. Robert Oppenheimer, the creator, (laughs) one of the inventors of the nuclear bomb. Uh, And he's talking about optimism versus pessimism, which is kind of what we're talking about. He says, the optimist thinks this is the best of all possible worlds. The pessimist fears it is true. (laughs) Which is a wonderful little quote. Uh, It turns out he was quite the linguist, along with being uh, the creator of horrible things. Um, But that's the thing, is Oppenheimer is a great example. I mean, nuclear power is, is this... And I know some people aren't in favor of it because there's always the possibility of meltdown and that kind of thing. But it's this amazing, it's amazing, this amazing thing that, that can go just sort of perpetually. It's not coal. It doesn't pollute the, the environment or anything like that. And it can keep entire cities going and it's pretty tremendous. And, and right around the time that happened, um, people seem to think okay but can we weaponize that <laughs> you know and that's by the way that's a very common theme in science fiction you find it in the alien series most yeah. notably this idea that oh we can explore but while we're here 
can we make a bunch of money or weaponize something <laughs> and then make a bunch of money? You know, like this idea, like you said, like human nature is such that it can take great things and it can do good things with them, certainly, but it can also pervert them for this other thing. And I think it's only a matter of time before that happens with almost anything. Um, to the extent that, you know, when, I mean, I didn't write it down here because everybody knows it, when Taylor finally is confronted with the fact that this planet was earth the whole time. And when Zaya says, you may not like what you find, he seems to know this. And so Taylor says like, you maniacs, you blew it up. Well, he's talking about us. He's talking about people and what we, and the horrible things we're capable of. Um, and so, so we're talking about some pretty rough things. We're talking about the fallenness of man, the the way man can pervert things you know uh and how i think interstellar in its in its inherent faith in mankind to at some point on its own uh save itself and and become this better thing that isn't that isn't worried about war or pestilence it doesn't have to worry about those things um you know, we're talking about some pretty rough things, but the th- the fallenness of man is, of course, not where it ends. There is a hopeful ending. It's just not necessarily with us. And what's more is people are capable of tremendous things and really wonderful things. And, of course, we're doing this, we're recording this and posting it on Thanksgiving when people tend to be a lot more, and as we're going into the holiday season, where people are more generous with others. And it's, and you're able to see people step up and be better than they ever have been. It's so I don't mean to say that we're not capable of great things, but often we need an example. So that, like you said, the way you take interstellar is the hope is not in us. The hope is that we will find this thing, this magic box or an alien race or whatever that mm-hmm. will then change us and make us in this, in the case of interstellar evolve to the point where we're not concerned with ourselves we're not concerned with greed or anything like that yeah um and that's one thing i i think you can at least i think we can at least respect about interstellar from a thematic point of view is that it it i think does reflect that there is a dichotomy in people at least mm-hmm. that uh there there's both evil and good in people right, right. um without saying that like without relying too heavily on either the the triumph of the human spirit or the triumph of the will as you will oh watch <laughs> out if you will um or uh just a a uh, completely pessimistic people should be wiped off the face of the earth point of view right yeah and that's the thing is so it's like okay so wiped off should be wiped off the face of the earth that is not not necessarily the thing i'm saying but like um this idea of at the very least in the case of interstellar being left to our own devices. So we, so the characters, the humanity in interstellar is literally being wiped off the face of the earth, which is why they're looking elsewhere. (laughs) Um, but I will then quote Matthew McConaughey's character where he says, if we find a home, then what? It's entirely possible that they could then ruin that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's the question. If we find a home, then what, if we're wiped off the face of the planet, then what, why, why is, you know, where do we find our hope? What can change us? Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's a Christian podcast. So you can probably guess that I'm <laughs> going to say Jesus. Um, and so, uh, 
Yeah. And I, I want to, um, I have some, some pretty big, uh, passages here from, from the Bible about, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. Um, which is what interstellar is talking about and what planet of the apes is talking about this idea of going to a new place that maybe that might be better. Um, so by the way, uh, so we've been kind of bouncing around. This is, this is a very big thing that we're talking about and I am really trying not to be overly negative and I'm trying to emphasize like, yes, things can be bad. Humanity can be quite terrible, but we do have hope in Jesus Christ. So that's what I'm trying to say. Let me ask you this, Josh, is there anything that needs to be filled in before we move on that I have uh, failed to, to say? Um, I think if we go theological for it a little bit, uh, with it a little bit, um, I think that the Bible makes the case that people are, uh, naturally evil. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot, you know, that's been argued in ethics and whatever through the years over whether man's basically good or basically evil. Right. And I think the the Bible makes the case it's evil. The answer is evil. Yeah. And I think I personally think history can make that case as well. But um, that doesn't mean that man can't do good or is irredeemable. Right. And theologically, the reason for that is uh, is grace mm-hmm. and. You, you, we can go a little bit into the idea of common grace if people know what that is, which is um, I guess just g- good a grace of God that's extended to the world as a whole and to people even even non-Christians. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we as Christians believe that anyone's able to do anything good. Yeah. Um, and so the I, th- I think as Christians, what we believe is that even though um, everyone is naturally evil and naturally would choose the evil, there is uh, there's something of God in them, whether that just be common grace or whether that be the Holy Spirit working in them. Um, those are the things that allow people to do good things and to be good to each other and mm-hmm. to... Uh, to do some of the great things that we've been talking about, even, even yeah. things, uh, more practical things like scientific progress and things like yeah. that. Um, so knowing that those two things coexist is, is how we can both believe that there are many problems with mankind and that mankind in many ways is not to be trusted. Yeah. Um, but we can also believe that there is a value in mankind. And, and you know, to bring in interstellar again, the big point that it's making is that what's going to save us isn't necessarily ourselves. It's ourselves incorporating this larger thing that was previously intangible. But the argument is making is being made that no, it's a very real thing and Mm -hmm. it's love. Yeah. This idea of self-sacrifice instead of self-preservation, the survival Mm -hmm. instinct as Dr. Man is always talking about. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it, if love is what if love you know if love will keep us together <laughs> well what is i mean there's no greater love than i don't know what what is what is there no greater love than um uh the love of a man for a pizza okay so there's no greater love than that i don't think so hmm my friend john said that i do like pizza <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so we're of course referencing uh <laughs> uh 
there's no greater love than this, that uh, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Yeah. So if self-sacrifice is the essence is like the best, the best love, the best kind of love or the greatest kind, then, then somebody who sacrifices himself for all of mankind is one could say love incarnate. And thus, that is what will save us. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the argument that Interstellar (laughs) is making, but that's this is what I'm talking about. Is this is what frustrates me? Is like it has so many spiritual themes that it refuses to engage with on that level. Yeah. But by talking about love, it is bringing in this idea that um, that everybody understands, but is hard to quantify. Yeah. And so. yeah and so like love grace forgiveness redemption like they're all part of the same thing and so and they're all about renewal which is which is a lot of what the film is about um and so we have uh some uh, bible verses here uh one is isaiah sixty five seventeen through i forgot to write down uh the last of it but i believe it's uh maybe one or two verses i apologize mm-hmm. um so it's uh see i will create a new heaven and a new earth the former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind but be glad and rejoice forever in what i will create for i will create jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy i will rejoice over jerusalem and take delight in my people the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more so okay this uh, this passage is directly referenced in the next passage, which is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Uh, would you like to take all that? Yeah, sure. Do it as Charlton Heston. Don't do that. <laughs> I want people to actually pay attention. <laughs> all right. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, of course, the idea of, uh, you know, um, the old order of things passing away, we've, we've referenced that verse a couple of times. Um, but this idea of, okay, well, if that's, if that's been passed away, what will it be replaced with? Mm-hmm. And it's this, this new, you know, new heaven, new earth, like a new kingdom in, in which God dwells with his people. Mm-hmm. He's not a mystery. He's not a concept. He's not this unknowable thing. He is with us. And because we are with him and he is, you know, the, uh, the source of all good, um, then that is what we will be. There won't be these things anymore. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. Um, and that does seem to be what people 
what the character of Taylor in Planet of the Apes is searching for and what he's hoping for, mm-hmm. but he seems to be hoping against hope. And then by the end of the film, he indeed said, whatever hope he has is gone or his cynicism is confirmed far beyond his expectations. And then Cooper from, uh, interstellar, th- this seems to be what he is searching for a new place that doesn't have any of the stuff that they're dealing with on earth. You know, his wife, uh, died, um, from, I think she had a tumor or something like that. And then we find out, uh, based on reports that he's get, getting from his now adult children, we find out that his son had a son who died and his next son is sick as well. And just it's like the earth is decaying and is passing away. And as it does, so um, there's crying and mourning and all of these things. And they're looking for this thing that will, that will give them hope and will redeem them. And the Bible is saying that, that is possible and it will happen and it is through god god is our hope god is love and we though we are capable of tremendously bad things we are not irredeemable and in fact we have already been redeemed if we uh if we accept that so talking about big things here and we're we're getting to the point where we're going to sign off can you think of anything that you would like to interject before we do um, no, I don't think so. Okay. I feel like I should have something, but, I uh, I don't know. I feel like we've, we've covered most of this. Yeah. So I guess, uh, the idea is that if you're looking, if you're looking for hope, um, you know, I'm not saying don't look to your fellow man because again, we're, we are capable of tremendously great things. Yeah, there is something to there is something hopeful in humanity, but that's not the end. Yeah. And, and you know what the thing is, actually, I'll say this, uh, it would be possible. Theoretically, it's, it would be possible to look at your fellow man and see nothing worth trusting, nothing worth putting your faith in and just say, you know what? Screw them. I've got God and that's enough. But then if you've got God and if you've got Jesus Eventually, you're going to have to start looking at other people the way they do. Mm-hmm. And they view people as worth the sacrifice. Yeah. They view people as redeemable and worth redeeming. Yeah. And that's. And Jesus sees people as that, even knowing the absolute worst about people. Indeed. Like Jesus knows the worst things that we've thought and the worst things that we've done. Yeah. But still finds us worthy of sacrifice not worthy of sacrifice still chooses to sacrifice for us and and it seems like a contradiction or or maybe a paradox not a contradiction it seems like a paradox this idea that like okay i don't have faith in man i'll put my faith in god which incidentally will then instill in you a love of man which will then cause trust and faith and Mm -hmm. all these things that you wouldn't have otherwise Mm -hmm. which it's it's odd and and of course you're only embracing god precisely because you don't you know how bad man can be Mm mm-hmm but then in doing so, you just, again, when you plug into God, you're plugging into what he is and what he is, is love, mm-hmm. love while knowing the truth Yeah, as horrible and as wonderful as it can be. Yeah. So I don't know. So it's, uh, I'm glad that we, we ended there because I don't want anyone to think that we're saying screw people, focus on God. Cause you can't do those. Mm-hmm. You can't do both. Yeah. Um, so, Okay. I think we will leave it there. 
big things talked about from a big movie. Um, you know, again, big picture stuff. And so, uh, if you haven't seen Interstellar yet, which I, I it's, it's insane to me that you would listen to this whole episode having not, but you almost have seen it now. Indeed. Yeah. Cause listening to two people talk about this movie, same thing. that's gotta be the same as watching. I mean, it. visuals are okay in a movie, but really indeed, you just got to know a few of the lines and the basic premise. And then, uh, but if you haven't seen it, uh, I would recommend seeing it. There's a lot of stuff that I, that frustrates me about it. A lot of stuff that it tries to explore, but doesn't go as far as I think it is capable of going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, but it's still a really wonderful cinematic experience. There is, there are characters that you'll, uh, engage that will be engaging and it will be just, you know, frustrating at times, but it will be generally a pretty good time at the movies. Mm-hmm. So, and one that again, to go all the way back, this film didn't have to be as philosophically ambitious as it is. Yeah. It could have just been a big spectacle and it still would have been fun. But in, it's in fact, it's his willingness to, to engage with us philosophically. That is a, is a big risk. And I appreciate that he takes these risks. Yeah. You know, there are people that hate Christopher Nolan. And I think that that is, while I don't think he's a perfect director by any stretch, I think there are major flaws. Um, he does what very few filmmakers do and what the great ones always do, which is he takes risks and he and he has a signature and he really wants to explore things with the audience that they wouldn't otherwise, especially when seeing a space movie or a Batman movie mm-hmm. or whatever. So yeah. this is, I believe, the second Christopher Nolan film we have discussed. No, third because we talked about, I talked about the Prestige before you came on. Yeah, we talked about the Dark Knight. We've now talked about Interstellar. Memento has been a companion film. Um, so yeah, he's he puts out movies. Clearly, he puts out movies that we can get that can allow us to really get into them. Yeah, not every movie is that. So anyway, Interstellar, go see it. Lots of fun. Um, next week, I believe we will have uh, we'll do a minisode. It'll be, we'll be talking about Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. And as far as other things coming up, uh, we'll be talking about Ridley Scott's Exodus. And we will be talking about Saving Christmas. That will be, I believe, in a couple of weeks. Something to look forward to. Christmas extravaganza. Christmas extravaganza. Um, Yeah, so... In case you were thinking like, oh, I like their show, but I don't, I think I'd like a more snarky and negative tone. (laughs) Stay tuned in a couple of weeks as we try to fight that because it's not a tone I like to strike, but oh, sometimes things just welcome you in. So like a vampire, vampire. you know, you, they, you know, saving Christmas doesn't know what it's well, what it's bringing inside. (laughs) But anyway, so, okay. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.